Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. The story will break your heart. It's going to make you angry. The subject, insurance plans denying legitimate claims for emergency care. Reporting our lead story this morning is a former emergency room registered nurse, Holly Louie. Also in today's Monitor Monday, a story is going to make you angry. United Behavioral Health denied claims based on internally developed medical necessity criteria. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will have the latest news on this major story. Also, CMS made significant changes in statistical sampling methodology. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is standing by with that report. You may have a ticking time bomb in your charity care revenue. Tim Powell reports on this explosive story. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today I'm reporting from the American College of Physician Advisors Annual Conference in Atlanta. Gathered here are over 350 physicians and others who are interested in ensuring that their hospital or health system can succeed while remaining compliant with a myriad of regulations. This conference started by Dr. Nick Ulmer from Spartanburg Regional Medical Center in South Carolina had to move from Greenville because the hotel could not accommodate the growth. And then this year, the organizing committee, which includes RAC Monitor Editorial Board member Juliette Ugarte-Hopkins, had to close registration due to overwhelming demand. What a problem to have. Well, if you work with one of the physician advisors who are attending this conference, you must use this opportunity to pull a prank. And I want you to blame it on me. So go fill their office with balloons or wrap their desk in plastic wrap or embed their stapler in jello or whatever else you think of and then email me a picture. Please do this. It'll show you truly care about them. And I'd love to feature your pictures in an upcoming episode. So what's worth talking about today? Well, you're gonna hear later about emergency departments, but I've got a couple issues that came up last week. First, United Health Group released a study looking at the costs associated with freestanding emergency departments. Less than 25% accept incoming ambulances they often don't accept Medicare or Medicaid, and at least in Texas, where there's a large number of freestanding EDs, they tend to be located in metropolitan areas with higher median income that is already well-served by hospitals, urgent care centers, and physician offices. The United Health data also indicated that while 8% of hospital visits, me, visits to hospital-based EDs are classified as true emergencies that require care only available in an ED, um, with the um, freestanding EDs, only 2% of the visits um, were true emergencies. They also report that the cost of these EDs is significantly higher than even hospital-based EDs, with the average cost for a patient with strep throat to be over $2,700, compared with $1,800 in a hospital-based ED and $130 in a doctor's office. 
Now, of course, United Health Group has a vested interest in reducing utilization of these freestanding EDs because of their cost. And the underlying motivation for this study is unknown, but it certainly is interesting. I've asked Emily to put the report in the handouts tab. Now, the other emergency department issue that came up last week has been a topic we've discussed on prior Monitor Mondays, the coding and payment of emergency department facility fees. You may recall that the coding of these visits has no official guidelines from Medicare, so it's up to, up to hospitals to develop their own. And apparently there have been an increase in the number of visits that are coded with higher level codes, which led MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Committee, to discuss this trend at their meeting last week and to recommend that CMS finally develop formal code selection guidelines. Now, of course, nothing happens quickly, but by 2022, we may actually have a formal guideline. Until then, it remains confusing and subject to interpretation. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. CMS made significant changes in statistical sampling methodology for overpayment estimation. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has that live report. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and thanks for having me on this beautiful Monday. Effective January 2nd, 2019, CMS radically changed its guidance on the use of extrapolation in audits by RACs and MACs. Also, extrapolation before had very little guidance, and the Program Integrity Manual, or the PIM, had not been revised for many, many years. Well, as you know, in extrapolation, the auditor collects a small sample and then determines the error rate of the sample. For example, if 50 claims are reviewed and 10 are found to be non-compliant, then the error rate is set at 20%. That error rate is then applied to the universe, which is generally a three-year time period. It's assumed that the random sample is indicative of all your billings regardless of whether you changed your billing system during that time period of the universe or maybe hired a different biller. In order to extrapolate an error rate, contractors must use a statistically valid random sample and then apply that error rate on a broader universe of claims using statistically valid methods. With extrapolated results, auditors allege millions of dollars of overpayments against healthcare providers, sometimes more than the provider even made during that time period. Prior to January 1st, 2019, CMS offered very broad strokes in guidance on extrapolation with very few details. Change number 10067 overhauled extrapolation in a huge way. Now, extrapolation shall be used, and notice the word shall, when a sustained or high level of payment error exists. And that high level of payment error is defined at 50%. For targeted probe and educate programs, extrapolation may be used. So that does give some discretion to the auditors. On the other hand, with this guidance now, it follows that extrapolation should not be used if there is not a sustained or high level of payment error or evidence that documented educational intervention has failed. So under 50%, there should not be extrapolation. The revisions also state that the contractor or the auditor may review the provider's past noncompliance for the same or similar billing issues or a historical pattern 
of non-compliant billing practice. This is huge because so many times providers simply pay the alleged overpayment amount if the amount is low or moderate in order to avoid costly litigation. Now, those past times that you simply pay the alleged amounts can be and will be held against you. Another monumental modification to RAC audits is that the RAC auditor must receive authorization from CMS to go forward in recovering from the provider if the alleged overpayment exceeds $500,000 or is an amount that is greater than 25% of the provider's Medicare revenue received in the previous 12 months. The identification of claims universe was also redefined. Even CMS admitted in the change request that on occasion, the universe may include items that are not utilized in the construction of the sample frame. This can happen for a number of reasons. Some claims or claim lines are discovered to have been subject to a prior review. They can't audit you twice. The definition of the sample unit necessitates eliminating some claims or claim lines, for example, if they weren't paid by Medicare. So as you can see, this new, this new revised change request for extrapolation, it has so many more changes that I cannot get to now, but I will get out an article to, to, to get over all of this. One thing to note, though, high-volume providers should face lower risk of extrapolation if their audited error rate is less than 50% and they do not have a history of non-compliance for the same or similar billing issues or a historical pattern of non-compliant billing practice. Thank you so much, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, Tim Powell, and Holly Louie. This is Monday. It's March 11th. This is the first Monday of Daylight Savings Time, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. There's an exciting, outstanding webcast on telehealth coming your way this Thursday, March 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll learn how telehealth can extend patient care beyond the walls of hospitals, health systems, and physician offices. During this webcast, you'll be exposed to the new world of telehealth, including analysis of current events and new information so you can make strategic decisions for the future. Join us this Thursday when author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey conducts this essential webcast. Learn how telehealth can create new pathways to increase revenue and minimize compliance. When you register, save $40 by entering the coupon code MONDAY. To learn more about telehealth, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. There's a new healthcare publication focused specifically on the RACs and third-party auditors. It's called Auditor Monitor. Now, this essential guide is filled with the latest audit news, and you can subscribe today at the RAC University Bookstore. And now for the Monitor Money Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What's risky today? Hiring consultants, Chuck. Now, don't get me wrong. I am definitely not disparaging consultants in general. A good consultant can get you out of a jam. I regularly rely on the wisdom of consultants, including my colleagues on Monitor Monday while assisting clients. But as much as you can be helped by a good consultant, a bad one can ruin a case or even cause you to wind up in one. Here's one of the more surreal moments of my life. 
a colleague and I were having lunch with a consultant who joined a regional accounting firm. She was telling war stories to impress us. While she'd worked with a contractor, she was paired with an OIG agent investigating a clinic that was owned by a physician who was born in India. Telling the story, she shook her head. He's Indian. Everyone knows all Indians commit fraud. After my colleague and I made sure we had not broken our jaws on the table, we sought to confirm we hadn't misheard her. She stood by her slur, adding that she was scared that this physician would kill her. So she and the OIG agent had checked into a hotel under an assumed name and then went and stayed someplace else. Now think about that one for a second. If she was going to go stay someplace else, she should have used her actual name at the first hotel. This consultant was not, shall we say, the sharpest bulb or maybe the brightest knife in the drawer. Now, at the time, I had about a dozen clients that were being audited by that particular Medicare contractor, um, the one for whom this consultant had worked. Nearly all of my clients were Indian. Suddenly, everything came into clear focus. The contractor had been systematically auditing Indian physicians. Uh, ignoring for the moment what I think was the terrible behavior by the contractor, let's return to the consultant. To this day, she's out there plying her wares. You could hire her. While her bio notes how often she's testified and been deposed, it does not say, I'm a complete racist or I judge people on stereotypes without actual information. So how would you know not to hire her? I don't have a perfect answer. I can only offer a few suggestions. First, ask around a lot. As you're interviewing or asking references, ask, was there anything that concerned you about the particular consultant? Did anyone in the organization raise concerns about this person? How did she communicate? Was she open to feedback? Then interview your potential consultants. Ask, you know, get them talking. Ask them what trends they notice in reviews. Ask for concrete examples of how they've approached particularly complicated potential overpayments. While you're doing this, think about what role you want the consultant to play. And are they someone who thinks of themselves as an enforcer or as a defender? Are they going to air or resolve ambiguity in favor of the government's position or in favor of you? Do you want to choose someone who does one or the other? Or maybe you want someone who's going to give you both options and lets you pick. Now, I can't promise that if you're diligent, you're going to be able to weed out people like this consultant, but I can promise you at least improve your odds. And so don't just hire someone because you've seen their name around. Talk to them. Ask about them. So, Chuck, I opened this segment with the sentiment, don't get me wrong. Now, it's only if we were pretenders that bad consultants would wear t-shirts that say, don't get me wrong. And a bunch of 80s music junkies would probably guessed our song. From the album Get Close, one of my favorite Pretenders albums, Don't Get Me Wrong. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis.
You may have a ticking time bomb in your charity care revenue. Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell is with us to explain why this could be a major compliance issue. Tim, good morning. Good morning, Chuck. And lately I've been talking a lot about charity care write-offs as a compliance issue. CMS is currently auditing uncompensated care as reported on Medicare cost reports. And CMS audits have reduced in scope since I first started doing them back in 1982. Now they only audit numbers that impact reimbursement like bad debts and graduate medical education. CMS is auditing uncompensated care because it impacts the amount of disproportionate share hospital or dish payments that certain hospitals get. Nonprofit providers must comply with the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, or PIPACA. PIPACA created a new provision in Section 501 of the Internal Revenue Code, subsection R. The four new requirements a hospitals must meet in order to maintain their tax-exempt status are, one, they must perform a community health needs assessment, two, they must create a, and apply a financial assistance policy, three, they must have a limitation on charges, and four, they must follow certain billing and collection practices. The PIPACA also requires the financial assistance policy include the following elements. First, there must be an eligibility criteria for financial assistance, whether such assistance includes free or discounted care. Two, the basis for calculating amounts charged to patients and the permitted methods to be used in determining that are generally billed. Three, the method for applying for financial assistance and what documentation will be used to determine the qualification. Next, the actions the organization might take in the event of non-payment. And finally, measures to widely publicize the financial assistance policy within the community, and these requirements apply to all medically necessary care, not just care provided in the emergency department. In addition, charity care you report to Medicare may not be the same amounts you report to your state Medicaid plan. States like Florida pay disproportionate share hospital or dish payments based on the amount of charity care, but the state may define charity care differently than PPACA. Charity care in Florida for state dish purposes is for patients whose family's income for the 12 months preceding the determination is less or equal to 200% of the federal poverty level. So what does all this have to do with compliance? First, nonprofit hospitals could lose their tax-exempt status for not meeting the PACA requirements, and this may come to light during the Medicare audit. Second, CMS could decide as a result of their audits that most or all of the charity care reported on the cost report does not comply with charity care for cost reporting purposes and lead to a disallowance. Third, your state allocation of state dish monies may be impacted by whether or not you can document what the state plan calls charity. Many hospitals have a complete disconnect with PPACA and what is written off as charity care by patient financial services. I have even seen hospitals use what they call presumptive charity care allowances as charity care. Today is a good day to start asking questions about your charity care compliance. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a healthcare regulatory expert. A federal court in California found that United Behavioral Health denied claims based on internally developed medical necessity criteria. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by live with that report. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. In October 2017, Chief Magistrate Judge Joseph Spiro of the United States District Court for the Northern District of California presided over a 10-day bench trial of a class action lawsuit against United Behavioral Health, a subsidiary of United Health Group that serves over 60 million members. 
The class action was brought on behalf of 50,000 plaintiffs, many of whom are children and adolescents, who were covered by United Plans between 2011 and 2017 and were denied care for mental health and substance abuse claims. The plaintiffs accused UBH of manipulating its internal coverage criteria to increase the number of claim denials and thereby keep Benex, the industry insider's term for benefit expenses, down. Last Tuesday, on March 5, 2019, Judge Spiro, in a 106-page scathing decision, issued his ruling, finding that United Behavioral Health illegally denied mental health and substance use coverage to tens of thousands of patients. The ruling has been described as a monumental win for mental health and substance abuse patients by sending a strong signal to insurers that they cannot ignore standards for coverage and can't simply make up the rules as they go along. This controversy is set against the backdrop of the Federal Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008, which is meant to prevent insurers from unduly limiting behavioral health coverage. The law was adopted amidst a history of discriminatory conduct by health insurance companies who reputedly were less likely to cover mental health and substance abuse disorders as compared to medical conditions like diabetes, MS, and asthma. The following are but a few of the most notable passages from the court's 106-page scathing decision. Judge Spiro discounted UBH's expert testimony, noting that UBH experts had serious credibility problems and finding that their testimony was evasive, even deceptive. Judge Spiro described UBH's guidelines for making coverage determinations as unreasonable and infected by financial incentives meant to restrict access to care. According to Judge Spiro, there is an excessive emphasis on addressing acute symptoms and stabilizing crises while ignoring the effective treatment of members' underlying conditions. In short, once the acute condition was treated, UBH would tend to reduce or deny services. The care wasn't addressing the underlying issue or the chronic condition. Finally, Judge Spiro found one of the most troubling aspects of UBH's guidelines is their failure to address in any meaningful way the different standards that apply to children and adolescents with respect to the treatment of mental health and substance use disorders. Judge Spiro's ruling focused exclusively on liability, finding UBH liable for breaching its fiduciary duty under the federal ERISA law and illegally denying claims. In the coming months, Judge Spiro is expected to issue a separate ruling on the remedy owed to the class plaintiffs and any damages to be paid. We'll continue to report on this case as it proceeds. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary was calling in live from London, where she is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. Pick up any healthcare news feed, and no doubt you're going to see the headline, Surprise Billing. Now, the issue is not a patient not knowing that a provider is not in their network, but there's another major cause of surprise bills. Insurance plans denying legitimate claims for emergency care as, quote, non-emergent. Here now with one example that is sure to break your heart is Holly Louie herself, former ED nurse. And a warning, the images you're about to see are quite unsettling. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me. I was just sitting here stunned at how much what I'm going to talk about overlaps 
with what Mary just talked about on unethical pair policies and practices and idiosyncratic rules they just make up as they go to avoid paying bills. Surprise bills is not a simple issue. It is a very complex issue with myriad causes, many variables, and so we don't have time to cover those, but I just want to stress this is not a one-size-fits-all issue, and it, it would behoove everyone to understand it completely. What we're going to talk about today is legitimate emergency care that is maybe covered, but then the sequela or the outcome or the downstream effect of it is not. So the other thing to consider here is I've walked through this problem I'm going to present with the father of the patient. Take a walk in their shoes. They don't have contractual expertise. They're not attorneys in most cases. The explanation of benefits are often written in Greek. The bills are so complex, and they're a totally foreign language to many, many patients. And all of a sudden, what they thought was a legitimate emergency visit covered under their contract and their health plan is suddenly denied as cosmetic, not covered, not emergent. So we're going to launch into my story today about this beautiful young 16-year-old girl. She was invited to, and we have some pictures up, the before, during, and after. As Chuck said, the during are pretty graphic, so turn away if you don't want to see it. She was invited by the parents of her good friend to go out for boating for the day. So this was not a bunch of teenagers who had been sneaking illegal beer and drinking. This was supervised fun on the lake. They were tubing, and unfortunately, the two friends collided. And as you can see, her front teeth were completely knocked out. Now, her Blue Cross plan did cover the emergency visit for this. But then the trouble began. She needed bone grafting. She needed multiple surgeries. And clearly, there's no way to put these teeth back in. They're somewhere at the bottom of a reservoir. So then Blue Cross began denying all subsequent claims to take care of this problem, saying teeth are cosmetic. We don't cover cosmetic. Even though they sent multiple requests asking the father for the surgeries for the bone grafting and other things, these appear to be related to an accident. Is that true? Multiple records were sent. It was confirmed multiple times, and yet Blue Cross still denied all subsequent services after the emergency department as related to teeth and therefore cosmetic. Eventually, her father had to hire an attorney, and that took a while. More denials, more appeals, more letters. Eventually, her father started calling the adjuster once a week and saying, have you reviewed this again? These injuries are a direct result of a severe traumatic injury. All in all, this father paid $27,109.86 upfront, out of pocket for non-covered services. The physician still expected to be paid. The hospital still expected to be paid. They were not gonna just write off all these charges because Blue Cross said they're all patient responsibility non-emergent, cosmetic. I really like everyone watching today or listening today to take a peek at these pictures in before, during, and after. And if this was your daughter, your wife, your mother, your son, whomever, do you really think that that is a fair situation that she doesn't need teeth anymore for the rest of her life because it's a cosmetic? 
I think as we look at surprise emergency bills, we need to look at payer policies that determine these things that um, are really outside of the bounds or that decide based on idiosyncratic Monday morning quarterbacking after the fact, we're not going to cover this or we are. Patients should not have to sue. They shouldn't have to retain attorneys. It should not take more than two years to have legitimate services covered. So I think any conversation of surprise bills has to include this type of situation, this type of scenario where patients who had true emergencies, no doubt about it, should have coverage and they should not be getting bills for $27,000. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Holly, very much. That was Holly Louie. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, and she's a compliance officer for Professional Management Incorporated. And now's the time for the Monday Q&A, and once again, here's our buddy, David Glazer. Hi, Chuck. Got two questions for Nicole. So, Nicole, first off, in your example, you kind of talked about an error rate calculated off of the number of claims. Is that the way they usually calculate the error rates? And I guess I'll ask you the second one, too. When you're done, if you could just repeat the transmittal number, that would be great. Sure. The change request number is 10067. It's actually hard to find if you don't have the exact number on, on, on the Internet. And you're right, the error rate is normally based on the alleged mispaid money. So a better example would be if you had 10 claims for $500 and one is wrong for $100, the error rate is 20%, not 10%. And that is how it generally works. So thank you for those questions. Thanks, Nicole. Chuck, I hope everyone is enjoying Daylight Savings Time, and I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, Tim Powell, David Glazer, and Holly Louie. And we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being with us here again next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. In the meantime, I hope you're going to join me this coming Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when author, educator, consultant Dwayne Abbey conducts a very timely webcast on telehealth. And remember, you can save 40 bucks when you enter the coupon code MONDAY. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday. Interact Monitor, thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.